Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Steve Tellis. Steve is a professor of political science at John Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Scannett Center. He's also the co-author, along with Robert Salbin, of the book Never Trump, The Revolt of the Conservative Elites. For our fall 2020 issue, Steve co-authored a fascinating essay with Rob Salden titled The Future is Faction. In this piece, Steve and Rob write that while the Republican and Democratic parties have become remarkably cohesive and polarized in the last few decades, this is not the norm for American politics. Traditionally, our parties have consisted of different factions, some more moderate, others more ideological, that have worked within their party and across the aisle to pass major legislation. Such factions can return, they argue, if moderates are willing to get their hands dirty and engage in party politics. And a renewal of factional governance would offer several benefits to our political system, including less polarization and leadership dominance in Congress, and more deliberative and creative policymaking from lawmakers. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, so Steve, we'll talk a little bit later in the conversation about the 2020 election results, how that might affect the parties and their factions. But first, we wanted to start where you started your essay. And that's the sense that political moderation is dying, essentially, that both parties are kind of more extremist now, they're more polarized now, and that the idea that this makes it difficult to pass policy reforms. Now, you write in your piece that moderates have responded to this in a couple of ways. First, they either advocate rules changes, uh, ways that they could change primaries or redistricting to try to have more moderate influence in the parties, or the idea of creating a sort of centrist, moderate third party. You kind of shoot down both of these ideas very quickly in your essay. So we want to start with that and ask you why you think these are bad routes for moderates to gain more influence. Well, thank you. And I should also note that this is my fifth article for national affairs. And the sixth, Excellent. if you include the public interest, which I do. So I always think of national affairs as just the reanimated body of the public interest. So sure. the origin of this piece really was with the conclusion of the book, Never Trump. And that book one thing we were trying to do in the conclusion was rather than just sort of summarize everything we'd already said and everyone's read boring conclusions like that, we tried to imagine, you know, the world beyond the events that we described in that book about sort of the, you know, Republican anti-Trumper type people, right, who hopefully in the near future, that will not be a category we will need. But one thing I noticed is that the people who complain about the sort of ideological dominance of our political system by the extremes usually have very implausible theories about what to do about it. Usually what they are are end runs around actually organizing anybody, right? And I'd say there's a reason why DSAers and Jacobin readers on the one thing and, you know, right-wingers on the other hand are so powerful in politics and if they, they actually do the work. Right. They show up and showing up in politics in any democratic political system is going to be a pretty sure path to power. And if you look at all of the strategies that moderate organizations have, they all involve some short circuit around actually organizing anybody. Right. So ranked choice voting assumes that there are all these you know, moderate voters out there and presumably moderate candidates who, if you change the rules, would just spontaneously be able 
to find each other and have beautiful love together and, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of, you know, unorganized way. And on the other hand, right, there's this idea that, well, maybe we'll have a moderate third party. The problem with that is nobody can actually specify which moderation this moderate third party would have, right? That is, it's almost always the case that that's some sort of Bloombergian. And again, I should say, when I say Bloomberg, given that I teach at Johns Hopkins, I, you know, I should like cross myself and like, you know, say all praise be to Michael Bloomberg. But, you know, that Bloomberg track, which is almost always what people talk about, which is, you know, you might call it like woke austerity, right? Sort of, sort of <laughs> you know, social liberalism combined with more sort of budget balancing kind of stuff, right? Sure. You know, to a first approximation, nobody actually is in that quadrant, right? Except pretty wealthy people. There's a lot of very wealthy people who are in that quadrant, but there's no actual voters in that quadrant. The underorganized quadrant is the more socially conservative and economically liberal quadrant, but nobody is talking about that being the moderate thing they're going to organize, right? So what we basically say is that this problem is a problem of unequal organization. And unless you can figure out a way to solve that organizational problem, you're not going to solve the underlying problem of ideological capture of the political system by the extremes. At the end of the day, right, in order to win a presidential election, you're going to need to get a majority in the Electoral College, and presumably you're going to have to come close to a majority in the popular vote. So you're going to have to get moderate votes. And whether you get that from the, the woke austerity moderates or the conservative interventionist moderates, you still have to compete for those sort of median voters. But you write in the piece that that hasn't led to a sort of regression to the mean at all. So why is that? Like, even though they have to compete for those voters in the middle, they're staying hyper-polarized. In some ways, we're, I mean, we're arguably getting more polarized. It's not just we're staying that mm -hmm. way. One thing I would say here is it is telling that the Democratic primary election this year was decided to a first approximation by Jim Clyburn. Right. That if we when we actually go back and look at who saved American democracy this year. Right. You know, it'll be Jim Clyburn on the one hand, because he helped throw South Carolina to Biden. Right. Mm -hmm. And second, he dramatically pushed back against the parties left around defunding and related issues. Right. And I think both of those things will actually have a lot of consequence going forward. Now, when we talk about moderate, I mean, mod I don't actually love the term moderate. And actually, I spent the edits of this piece going back and, and eliminating as many references to moderate as I could. So there were like two or three times more in the original version than there were here, because it's a slippery term and it's unclear who it refers to. So in the piece, we basically say that the Democratic Party is eventually going to sort of factionally divide into three pieces. So there'll be a market liberal, right, which is close to the Bloomberg lane. That's a pretty small one, but it could be consequential. The largest is really the, what you might think of as the old Coke of the Democratic Party, right? The old interest group coalition of which people like Jim Clyburn are quite central, right? That is, that's the part of the Democratic Party that's pro-choicers and you know, African-American mainstream politicians and teachers unions, you know, that's the core of the party who have made a sort of blood oath together to all stick together, right? And you could call those moderates, right? They're certainly moderates compared to AOC, but they're not moderates if you compare them to Abby Spanberger, 
So that's where this, this term always, it's better to treat moderate more as the residual of the extremes than actually having a lot of substantive content here. Steve, since you brought up the future of the Democratic factions there, what is your sense of where that stands in terms of their internal battles after the election? Obviously, Biden wins, and so presumably that elevates his kind of establishment, so-called moderate faction. But also, I mean, they lost some other seats in Congress, and I'm not sure where that market liberal faction you're talking about, where they stand right now. What are your thoughts on that going forward? Yeah. So again, when you when we think about this, the underlying argument of the piece is that these internal party factions are going to become more organized over time, right? They aren't just going to be sort of loose agglomerations of people that you could identify using some algorithm, right? They'll actually be organizations with the capacity for collective action. And, you know, people will really be members of one or the other. And there will be, you know, lanes and presidential primary campaigns. There'll be organization that's, you know, very strong in Congress that sort of coordinates the behavior of members. And so again, in the Democratic Party, there's the legacy brand, that's Jim Cliver, and that's Nancy Pelosi, that's Joe Biden, right? Again, the thing that's interesting about Joe Biden is people keep trying to figure out what's the ideology of Joe Biden. And ideology is far less important to Joe Biden than partisanship is. Right? That is, Joe Biden really thinks of himself as a Democrat and a Democrat in that legacy old Coke version, right? That's what he really believes in. He really believes that what progress is, is all of these core Democratic interest groups sticking together and everybody getting theirs, right? So you saw in his, I guess it wasn't quite an you know, acceptance or whatever speech, whatever that thing is, when the other side hasn't as actually conceded, like yeah. accepted the election outcome, but whatever that was, right? He spent that long time making a shout out to teach, you know, to teachers unions effectively, right? And that that was a very Joe Biden move, right? He believes in the goodness of all those core democratic interest groups, right? So that's the core. The second, right, is that AOC lane. And the important thing is we shouldn't actually associate this too much with individuals. The important thing about these factions is there's all this organizational content underneath it. That is Jacobin and N plus one and just, you know, all, all of that organizational stuff on the left came before AOC and in some sense brought, you know, lifted her up, gave her ideas, gave her financial networks, gave her all this other stuff, right? And so in part, what's going on in the Democratic Party is these other factions are going to become more organized precisely because the far left faction is so organized. And this is where, you know, one, I think the best example of this is the Missouri First Congressional race where Cori Bush knocked off a very establishment, you know, African-American mainstream Democrat. And that is going to have the consequence that, you know, all of those African-American members, mainly in majority minority districts, are going to have to make very sharp decisions about whether they join AOC on the left or they stick with the old Coke Democratic Party. And if they stick with the old Coke Democratic Party, they need collective action, right? They need to not be all out on their own when they get primaried by a left-wing candidate like Cori Bush. And so part of the argument of the piece is that factional organization begets factional organization. That is, the more you are, one of these sides arms up, the more every other side has to arm up. So in some sense, there's an internal party arms race. The faction that's arguably the furthest behind this is the market liberals, right? And part of the reason for that is Whereas the left of the Democratic Party is actually pretty coherent, it's ideologically coherent, 
it's coherent in terms of the political incentives of its members, right? So most of its members come out of 80%, 70% Democratic districts, right? So they could run on anything. They could run on sticking Republicans into a meat grinder and making burgers out of their bodies, right? And people would say, thumbs up, sounds like a program, right? <laughs> Whereas the thing that, you know, all of the people in our, what we call the market liberal faction have in common is generally they have very closely contested districts, right? They're in purple districts and they actually don't have that sort of room to run ideologically. They win by differentiating themselves from the rest of the party brand, right? So they say, you know, you may be voting for other candidates in the president race, but you should think of me separately from that. Well, that means that getting in fights with other parts of the party are functional for them, right? Every time they're in a fight, so when Abby Spanberger was in a fight with AOC, right, the substance of that didn't matter as much as that she could go out and say, hey, when you think of AOC, don't think of me because I'm the one fighting back yeah. against her. Now, the problem is what you're going to do in terms of trying to cue closer to your district's idiosyncratic preferences are going to be different if you're Counter Lamb and you're Abby, Abby Spamberger or you're any of these other members. And that, in some sense, makes it harder to give ideological coherence to what they're looking for, because they're all looking, in some sense, to be treated as individuals. Now, they need a brand that they can run on, right? They need to be able to point to something more than their own efforts, right? So this is when you go back to the 80s and 90s. There was a thing, you know, there was the Democratic Leadership Council, and people could call themselves a DLC. Democrat. And every time people on the left attack that, that was good for them, right? So Jesse Jackson famously said DLC stood for Democrats of the leisure class, <laughs> you know, and a lot of those guys said, you know, we'll take it, right? Sounds good to me. I can fundraise off that. And so that's why I think some of the ideological coherence of this faction, which they need in order to fight back against the left of the party, is going to be harder for them to do. In some sense, their individual interests and their collective interests as an overall faction are in some degree of tension for that reason. It's obviously early days. We still don't even really know exactly what the real outcomes were in 2020. I mean, some of them we certainly do, but we're still looking at the exit polls, still trying to figure out a lot of the demographic shifts. But how do you see moving forward the sort of the future play out for those distinct factions within the Democratic Party? Do you view it as a, a victory for the more moderate liberal market types, the DLC types? Well, it's definitely not a victory for them, right? Again, if there was anything that won, it was the old Democratic Party that won, right? Again, I remember, sure. I don't know if you watched the Democratic Convention, but when they had the role of states, I think it was North Carolina, I could be wrong on this, right? But the person who stood for North Carolina was this like old African-American church lady, right? I mean, this is the late, you know, I used to go to the First Baptist Church in Charlottesville, right? And there, there's tons of these, right? There, these are like super organized women, right? They're Christian believing women, but they believe in the Democratic Party. Those arguably were the winners, right? When Joe Biden looks back and says, who do I owe this to, right? I don't think he says, I owe this to the editors of Jacobin. He says, I owe this to that African-American, church-going, Democratic lady, right? And, you know, Stacey Abrams, who represents a little bit different thing, but she's connected, you know, in some sense, she's a bridge between that woman and a little bit further to her left, but not mm -hmm. all the way further to her left. Right? I think that's who he thinks he owes something to. 
So I do think that you know one of the lessons out of this is that the market liberal people, the people like Abby Spanberger and Connor Lamb, are going to realize that they need organization, that they need ideas, that they can't just sort of do this all themselves because eventually they'll all get chewed up. And so I think one of the consequences of this is there is a little bit of a stink on the left of the party because there is some worry that things like defunding and the fact that some you know, more left-wing cities had a fairly lax response to the violence that sort of swirled around the protests, not the protest itself, but there were certainly a lot of it around and they, in a lot of these big cities didn't seem like they had a clue how to deal with it. And that did not play you know, very well. I think that's certainly going to be the interpretation. Again, we, don't, we may never know because the exit polls are going to be so useless. We may never come to a coherent interpretation of what happened here, right? But I do think that that is going to be one of the interpretations, right, is there was a lot of chaos over the summer and Democrats didn't seem to have a good response to it. And that was partially because mm-hmm. they were trying to appease their, their left. And we should not do that, right? I do think that Joe Biden is going to think that that's one of the lessons. And you can see that by the fact that Abby Spanberger was already saying that, you know, defunding was like one of the things that hurt Democrats. Maybe it was, and maybe it isn't, right? Everybody here is talking their own book. So, you know, I mean, the other thing, of course, is that any of the things that were purely partisan agenda items of either party, right, aren't going to pass, right? That is, there's not going to be no Green New Deal. We're not going to be adding D.C. as much as we actually ought to add D.C. And there ought to be a National Affairs article about why we ought to add D.C., right? Sure. But, you know, we're not doing any of those things where the only coalition is purely partisan. So one of the things is some of the, you know, the power of the far left in the party is going to be limited by the fact that Joe Biden knows he can only really legislate with some substantial Republican support. And that's going to give him the ability to say that he has to, like, not deliver to the party's left because there's no, you know, because the things the party left wants are, for the most part, things that can only be passed with single Democratic Party majorities. Steve, before we get to the future of the Republican factions, we talk a lot about the Democrats. First, I just want to ask kind of a historical chronological question. This is a classic political science question, too. But you write in the piece that historically, parties have had strong, durable factions. But obviously, that's changed the last few decades to become much more coherent, ideological, polarized. Why do you think that happened exactly? And, and why are you hopeful that factions will return in the future? So why did they die? Well, in part, right in the Republican Party, they were shot. Right. So my colleague at Niskanen Center, Jeff Kappaservice, has a whole book called Rule and Ruin about the decline of moderates in the Republican Party. And the, you know, significant parts of the Republican Party on the conservative side really thought that achieving their objectives meant killing off their moderate wing. So I think that's a big part of this. This was not an accident. I think the other part is the moderate wing didn't really have a coherent message. You know, on a few issues, they had a sort of different, they certainly were differentiated on race, was an important part of the thing that differentiated them. But they didn't really have the full spectrum ideological appeal that conservatives had. The other thing is the the foundation of that moderate Republican wing was really in the American establishment, was in the wealthy foundations and you know families like the Rockefellers and the institutions that they supported. And there was a sort of substitution of that and the fact that they controlled all these various kinds of institutions 
for actually doing, again, the organizational work that the conservative movement did, right? There was a lot of just straight up nuttiness in the conservative movement, right? We tend to underestimate how important that was for providing a lot of the troops for the conservative movement, right? But even the nuttier parts, right, did, you know, again, did work. They knocked on people's doors. They showed up at city council meetings. They showed up at school board meetings. They did all that work in a way that, for the most part, moderates didn't. And so I do think that that's true on the Democratic side, right? When you look at like the DLC and, the, and Progressive Policy Institute, they organized office holders, right? They organized people who were, you know, Al Gore was famously in the DLC. Bill Clinton was famously in the DLC, right? And earlier Al Gore, I should say. Al Gore Mark One was in the DLC. <laughs> but what they never did is they never organized people horizontally, right? That is, when you think about the conservative movement, it wasn't just all these organizations connected up to some mailing list in the center, although there were lots of that, right? But there are also lots of things that actually connected these conservatives directly to each other, right? You know, gun organizations, right? Have lots of things where people are meeting each other and shooting guns together, right? That's social capital. And what moderates never did in either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party was create those lateral horizontal connections that really are, are the social capital that allow people to organize, to mobilize, to turn out, to do this sort of factional infighting. And so I do think that this problem that we're identifying in the, in the paper is a problem of longer providence, which is this imbalance of who organizes and who looks for shortcuts around actually doing that hard work of democracy. Is there anything to the thought, like, right, the term moderate, right, is obviously very slippery here, but at least in the sense that maybe this group is moderate to the extent that they are, like, actually less political, and therefore less likely to develop the kinds of like grassroots organizations and mobilization efforts that, that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's a question how far down the rabbit hole we want to get here. But, you know, I'm all for going into rabbit holes. So <laughs> one of these is that the moderate that we're talking about, are we talking about the potential voter? Or are we talking about the elites who are the ones who actually are the people who do the organization? So one thing to say about this paper and the other work I have is I generally have a theory in which it's elites creating organizations that's the primal force in politics, right? And voters can attach on to that, but voters don't, for the most part, just spontaneously create organization, right? They respond to organization that's created by various different kinds of partisan or ideological entrepreneurs of various sorts, right? So I do think if you look at the kind of people who have money and do organizational you know, entrepreneur activities, one thing that is characteristic of a lot of those moderates is they don't like conflict. That is, when you talk, see how they talk, they always talk about how great Congress was when people were nice to each other and went out for drinks and their wives had them over for dinner, right? That yeah. feels like a tell to me that they like the idea of a politics that doesn't involve conflict, but politics is conflict. Even a deliberative politics is conflict, right? It's, it's conflict and, you know, the inability to actually act without that actually eventually leads to deliberation. That's something I think the founders knew, right? Is you wanted to create a political system in which conflict eventually led to discussion and deliberation. I do think one of the problems here is, I think it is the case that a lot of the 
the voter base that these guys would appeal to is also averse to conflict. They're not the kind of people who, in that sense, are actually hard to organize, right? You can organize them for good government, patriotic stuff, right? Which is why, again, one thing that's interesting with the Never Trumpers is so much of the things they created were about defending democracy rather than actually having a fight, right? And actually organizing against the Trumpers. That's what almost nobody did. Where are other than the Lincoln Project, which didn't actually organize anybody, right? That it, it did a lot of ads, and some of those are great ads, and I thought they were funny, you know, and they got people to give money to it, but they never organized anybody. And that's the interesting thing here is that I think this was a wasted moment, right? We had four years of people criticizing Donald Trump, criticizing what he'd done in the Republican Party without creating any durable organizations inside the Republican Party to fight out for power, you know, at the state level, at the national level, at, you know, even think tanks and other things, right? There's none of that. There's no legacy of that, right? When you actually look at the Never Trump movement, the Lincoln Project will go away, Republican voters against Trump will go away, and then the question will be what, what was left? And it may be that there wasn't very much left. All right, so now, Steve, so we're talking about Republicans now. You know, there's been a lot of talk on the right from some people about this idea of a realignment that Trump would usher in this sort of more multi-ethnic working class party. We saw maybe some evidence of that in the exit polls with him doing better by minorities. But what is your sense? I mean, I know you said that there's a, there is a group of voters that's economically liberal, socially conservative. But do you actually see evidence of that becoming a big faction within the GOP? So let's start with the exit polls. I have a short position on the value of these exit polls. Now, this is a semi straussian podcast, I think. So I think I can actually say this. <laughs> right, that, that is, There's a little bit of a noble lie quality to the belief that there were all these black and brown people that voted Republican, right? I think we certainly know in South Florida, right there, we don't need exit polls to know because we can actually look at who voted where, right? And a few border counties, which are actually not that populous in Texas. So we know that, right? Beyond that, I don't know how much we actually know about it. Now, I think that is a wholesome thing to believe, whether it is true or not, for Republicans, <laughs> sure. right? And part of that is that I do think one of the pathologies of our political system over the last 20 years is the increasing belief that politics is all like World War I trench warfare. You know, each side knows exactly who their voters are, and there's no persuasion, and therefore the only question is who can turn out their base. Whereas I actually think that a lot of the strength of democracy comes when parties are constantly thinking about poaching from the other side. That is, so they're not just staying in their trench, right? But they're actually trying to do like flanking maneuvers around and, you know, getting their, you know, the other soldiers to defect. That's a lot of the strength of democracy. And when, right, that stops happening, that's when you can easily turn politics into civil war. So it would be a good thing for Republicans to take the lesson of this, that they need to go out and figure out how to get more African-Americans and Hispanics to vote for them. Again, I think the empirical predicate of that statement is uncertain, right? And I think certainly, right, Democrats have the idea, and that would also be good for Democrats because it turns out that the people that Republicans would be trying to get to vote for them would not be like the vast majority of African-Americans will never vote Republican, right? Never. And I'll say that now never is a long time. So maybe the Republican Party will turn into something very different than what it is now, but the vast majority will not vote for them, in part because, as we know from a lot of political science, for lots of African-Americans, right, partisanship and racial identity are all wrapped 
up together, right? To vote Republican is literally to be a kind of race traitor, right? But that said, there are a lot of African-Americans who are actually quite ideologically, culturally conservative, right? They're church-going evangelical. They are generally fairly high on measures of authority, right? Both authority inside their own community and authority more, more broadly. And it's not crazy to think that a Republican Party ought to be able to get 20% of African-American voters, right? And 20% of African-American voters would be a big improvement. And it would be a hell of a hard thing for Democrats to win in a lot of states that they were losing. But those 20% are going to be the most culturally conservative, right? So the way you have to hold them, arguably, is on the one hand, you have to deliver more effectively economically for them. But also, just moving and associating yourself with the wokier parts of the left is actually not a good move for holding that part of the Black and Hispanic. So you need to do both. And so arguably, the more Republicans are going after those voters, the more there's actually a congruence between the white working class voters that Democrats need and the African-American and Hispanic voters that they're going to try not to lose, if that makes sense, right? Because both of them are more economically populist and are more culturally conservative, right? They're not as culturally conservative as the far right of the Republican Party, but they're certainly significantly more authority-oriented than the left of the Democratic Party. So that's where I actually think that the usual way we talk about this is the people say, oh, we need to do less identity politics. We need to talk less you know, about race, right? And the main thing we need to talk about is you know, multiple intersecting identities. That is, religion is a very powerful identity. And in some important ways, it cuts across some of these racial identities, right? And so that, you know, you can talk about people being black, and that is an actually very important part of the way that people conceptualize themselves, right? But these groups are, in fact, internally heterogeneous. And as we know, Niskanen Center published a great paper by Michael Fortner on the heterogeneity in African-American public opinion around criminal justice. And it actually turns out that things like defunding are not actually supported by the majority of actual African-Americans, right? What they want is they want police and they want police that answer to them. So that's, you know, so whereas the furthest sort of BLM side, you know, just wants a lot less policing, the majority of African-Americans want policing, but they want policing that's responsive to the authority bearing part of the African-American community. And that, I think, is going to be the tricky thing for Biden to somehow maneuver when he tries to both hold those voters as, you know, hopefully Republicans start competing more for them and hold the leftier parts of those communities simultaneously. That's the would-be multi-ethnic, socially conservative, economically populist sort of faction that is trying to realize that. And, and you see that in a number of different personalities, certainly coming out of the Trump campaign. There's a lot of momentum there. But you talk about some of the other factions that are going to continue to exist or might emerge within the Republican Party. Could you tell us a little bit about who those factions are and, and how they'll mix with the populist nationalist faction? Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit of this is speculative because, again, in the Democratic Party, you can already really see what these lines look like pretty clearly. And in the Republican Party, it's still a little unclear. You know, you could imagine right now, right, there are, in fact, Republicans getting elected in blue states. Larry Hogan in Maryland, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. 
the important thing is they don't really run as Republicans exactly. Right? What they run as is what I what I call adult supervision Republicans, right? So this is that <laughs> you have huge legislative majorities in both states. You look at Maryland and Massachusetts, the thing that characterizes them is there's unbelievably small number of Republicans in the legislature, right? But there's a significant number of voters who think that if you leave, you know, if you leave all those kids at home on their own, they're going to like raid the cookie jar and crap on the floor. And they need, you know, they need to be left at home with like a nice Republican who's going to make sure that they don't, you know, spoil everything. But those Republicans run, again, on their own idiosyncrasy, right? They run often against the national party. And they run as simply saying that I am a responsible reasonable person. And, you know, you basically want democratic governance, but you want somebody making sure that like the public sector unions don't go and like take everything out of the cupboard. What you would need for what we call a liberal conservative faction is something more than that, right? The Bakers and the Hogan's would actually have to, you know, go, A, go out and, and start embracing a general ideological set of principles that have a voter base behind them, that have a financial base behind them. Again, I do think there's a very large financial base for that, right? When you actually look at a lot of the conservative donors, that's pretty much where they are, right? They're for free markets, free trade, right? That's where the Chamber of Commerce increasingly is. Interestingly, the Chamber of Commerce now is funding you know, some significant number of people who are market liberals who are running in the yeah. Democratic Party. I think that's a significant fact that one thing you might see in these factions is a rearranging of the business community, the, the business community. And this is one of the problems with populist nationalist government is the more you go in that direction, the more business, which is always a powerful actor in conservative governance everywhere, right, is going to become more and more uncomfortable with dating Republicans steady, right? They've, that's what they've sort of made a decision to do in the last you know, 25, 30 years is to say, you know, let's just get married, right? And before business, you know, used to sleep around. You know, oh, Democrats, Republicans, you know, we're easy. And then one of the things that it certainly happened during the Gingrich Congress is Gingrich re and, and Tom DeLay really gave business a choice. They said, look, you're either with us or you're frozen out, right? And they chose to really enter into a much more durable an exclusive relationship with the Republican Party, right? Hmm. And that's one thing that might start coming unwound as the Republican Party goes in a more populist nationalist direction, right? And you can already see that, right? The, the, the internal culture of a lot of businesses, certainly a lot of tech businesses, are becoming more and more alienated from the cultural elements of Trumpist populist nationalism, right? Now, the Republican Party, right, one thing you could imagine in the future is the candidates that are going to be the presidential candidates of the Republican Party are going to be people who can bridge the populist, nationalist, and the liberal conservative faction, right? And again, that's where a lot of the, the way the politics is going to work is you're going to have much more organized factions that have the capacity to collective action, and decisions about who the candidate are going to be are going to look more like early 20th century and 19th century things where those factions formally bargain and put together a presidential candidate of one faction and a vice president of another, right? That's in a way what Ronald Reagan did when he made George H.W. Bush his vice president, right? He was consciously choosing 
the candidate from the losing faction in the primary, yeah. right? That's something we may see more going forward. And again, I think one of the questions is, can either of those factions attract a significant number of Black and Hispanic voters, as we were talking about before, right? Can they actually pull? And that's going to depend on the degree to which the populist nationalists decide to lean into a racially exclusive conception of nationality, or do they choose a vision of nationality that is in some ways more civic, more economic? And again, Trump was always in his own chaotic way, sort of ambivalent about which way he wanted to go, right? Did he actually want to say that he was going to be the head of a multiracial working class party? Or did he want to really lean into the sort of more racially or ethnically exclusive parts of that? And, and so I do think one of the lessons is people like Marco Rubio are going to be trying to, you can already see, right, as compared to Josh Hawley, Rubio is really running to see if he can thread the needle between these two factions, if he can be the candidate who could be sort of acceptable to both. But I do think you're going to see more organization, and especially in the aftermath of Trump losing, now that he doesn't have control of the executive branch, it'll be a lot easier for the sort of big money people in the Republican Party to start seeding organizations that formally represent a challenge to that sort of populist nationalist direction, the Republican Party. In a way, right now, I think they've been very hesitant to do so because they worry that this is a president who was willing to use the executive branch to punish his enemies, right? And so that's where a lot of that didn't happen. Steve, you mentioned lawmakers like Rubio and Hawley there. I'm trying to think of a, a criticism of your, your idea that, you know, having stronger moderate factions in both parties would be a good thing. And I think one thing you hear a lot is that, well, in the last few decades, moderates have supported a lot of bad ideas, whether it's the wars in the Middle East that didn't end well, or, or also they would argue that a lot of the energy for more creative, innovative policies comes from the outsiders, the kind of more extreme ideological, more populist, like a Rubio, like a Hawley, like a Tom Cotton. How do you respond to that and, and the idea that having moderate factions would be a good thing in both parties? One of the challenges, I think, now I'm going to go back to the Trump administration, right? Again, saying anything about the Trump administration, it's hard because in some ways it was such a weird, it, it was, it still is, it's, it's still a thing, you know, idiosyncratic to the president's own personality. I think the challenge is going to be the degree to which this faction takes on you know, it's like Peronism, right? And it's associated with the person of a leader and the more it sort of differentiates itself and can grow beyond that. Again, Trump does in fact have all these, these kids. I'm trying to be as polite on this family podcast as I can. About we appreciate them. that. And so, you know, you can imagine them saying that, you know, this populist nationalist faction is our property. It's a kind of, it's owned literally by this family. And we're going to continue to be the brand leaders of it, right? And that is not going to lead to, I'll just say, again, very politely in a family podcast, that's not going to lead to a very policy-rich you know, idea, right? And one of the challenges, I think, that the populist nationalists had in the Trump administration is they really did not have the deep apparatus of organizations and experts who could feed ideas to that particular faction. And as a consequence, most of whatever governing the Trump administration did, it did by relying on AI, right? They took Kevin Hassett from AI and it made him the head of CEA and helped lead, right? And that was a lot of the story of the Trump administration 
is they actually did very little governing in the populist nationalist direction. And what governing they did was really the governing by the legacy Republicans. And so the question I think is going to be, can they actually build infrastructure, especially on the economic side, to provide coherent, distinct ideas for that faction? Or are they going to keep borrowing it from other sources? So Hawley, Cotton, a bunch of those people, Rubio, right, have been very influenced by a lot of the ideas that Sam Hammond has produced out of the Niskanen Center, a national affairs author, I should know. Certainly. Um, but that's an example, right? We're not, in fact, a populist nationalist think tank, right? But they've been borrowing our capacity just like they've been borrowing capacity from AI and other sort of traditional Republican sources. And so, so I think one of the interesting stories is, are they going to build up their own think tanks, right? I mean, in some sense, American affairs is that. American Compass has some of that quality. But even then, right, these are very small operations compared to AI, right? AI can have an entire shop of economic experts that they can, you know, loan out to the administration for assistant secretary jobs to staff all the way down, right? And that apparatus still doesn't exist in any significant way on the populist national side. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're able to build it. Wanted to wrap up here with. To sort of summarize the, the benefits of having a more factional system, I know you mentioned in your piece that it could be less leadership dominance in Congress, more investment from individual lawmakers and feel like they can actually do something with policy, less fealty to a president and more lawmakers doing their own thing, more balanced presidential tickets, which you mentioned earlier. Kind of wrap up for us the benefits of factions, and then also maybe what we should be looking for in the next few months to see if these factions actually develop at an early stage. Yeah. So as we see it in the paper, there's a few benefits to factionalization. So one, as we know from conditional party government theory in political science, one of the things that happens when you have internally heterogeneous parties is you get weaker leadership, right? The leadership, the members are not going to be willing to transfer power over to the leaders to control the agenda, to determine what's being discussed in Congress, and you end up getting weaker rules in part because one thing these factions want to do is they want to actually govern with factions in the other party, right? So the populist nationalists, oddly enough, there's a lot of stuff they want to do with Elizabeth Warren, right? They want to break up platform monopolies. In some cases, they want more, you know, I I think there's really interesting moves already to talk about how there needs to be more unionization. I think that's a natural thing that flows out of populist nationalists because if their constituency is working class, They need to figure out a way to actually organize that working class rather than it being sort of atomized, right? So I think that's one of the consequences is you get a more entrepreneurial, less hierarchically, parliamentarily organized Congress. And I think that actually pushes you back toward the founder's image of what a legislature is supposed to be, which is deliberative, in some ways a little chaotic, right? But where there's multiple different coalitions that can form. And I think that feeds back into the kind of people who will run for Congress, right? Right now, you run for Congress, especially on the Republican side, you're running to do two things, right? You get to vote for whatever leadership tells you to vote for, right? And you get to go on Fox News and say that liberals are homicidal culture killers. If that's a job you want to sign up for, you're going to sign up, but only a particular kind of person wants to sign up for that job. Sure. Whereas if you want to actually do creative entrepreneurial legislating, you know, you're not going to get to do a lot of that, right? So one thing is the more Congress actually gets more disaggregated in how it's organized by leadership, 
the more you'll actually see an alteration in the kind of people who run. And I think that would also be good. The other thing I'd say, and I think especially in the context of the end of this rotten administration, is one advantage of factions, right, is it's a lot easier for them to push back collectively against potentially demagogic leaders of their own party, right? So one thing you saw is all the people who criticized Trump all got their heads sliced off one by one because they had no form of collective action to push back against a president who was governing in a demagogic fashion. An organized faction could, because an organized faction could collectively withdraw consent, right? They could collectively say, we're not going to cooperate, whereas all these individual members couldn't do that. And I think that actually is a very powerful safeguard for democracy, is actually having internally organized factions within the party that can push back against especially executives of their own party. So I do think that there's a lot of attractions to this. But the thing that has to happen before that is organization. That is, you know, actual citizens, actual wealthy people have to be willing to seed organizations to create this factions, right? In some sense, parts of each of the parties is going to have to realize that the organization of some of these factions, even if it's not their own, is desirable, right? Democrats mm-hmm. are going to have to realize that a faction that's going to be, you know, able to compete in North Dakota and Nebraska and places like that is not going to look like the rest of the party. But if the party actually wants to be able to govern, it's going to actually have to be organized in all those places in ways that are going to look a little different than how you organize in Ithaca and Chapel Hill and Cambridge. Yeah, that sounds great in theory. Maybe more difficult for the parties to accept that in practice. But all right, Steve, this is a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to read Steve's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>